All right, let's get started for Deuteronomy class. Deuteronomy class. We are in Exodus 32. If you want to turn there real quick, Exodus 32. We are answering a question. The golden calf situation has caused great sin to be committed before the Lord. And it actually cost some of them their lives. In fact, we see the count in Exodus 32. In verse 28, 3,000 people died. And here's the reason why they died. They died because when confronted with their sin and Moses coming off of the mountain, them having broken the conditional covenant of protection and provision that God had placed upon them, they broke it. Remember, it's a conditional covenant. Therefore, God was not obligated to keep his end of it anymore. And by breaking that, it introduced all kinds of sin leads to what? Sin leads to death. And so people had the opportunity to turn away from this wrongdoing, this idolatry. And in doing so, they were spared. But yet those who wanted to cling to their idolatry, the Levites suited up and went out and killed every person who would rather worship the golden calf and not Yahweh. In other words, the question was, where was their devotion lying? And they they persisted in their idolatry. That's where we're at. Now, before we answer our question, let's pray. Father, please bless this time. Give us minds to understand, hearts that are open, ears to hear. Help us, Father. Lead us by your Spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Notice in verse 29, what does he say? Do what? Moses said what? Or I'm sorry, the Lord said what? Dedicate yourselves. Some translations have the word consecrate yourselves. If you notice, if you have a marginal note, you look over in the side, what does it say there? Literally it means to fill your hand. Now let's read rest of the verse so we get an idea of what's going on here the question we left off with last week was what does it look like for a new testament church age believer in jesus christ to consecrate themselves so now let's read it then moses said dedicate yourselves today to the lord to yahweh for every man has been against his son and against his brother in other words notice that it costs family strife And there are actually some commentators that believe that what this is talking about is that when it came time to follow God's will and saying, you are to execute the ones who refuse to repent and turn again to me and worship me alone, that some of the Levites were having to do that with their own family members. Some say that's the reason why. Now, that's a hard call to make when it's your family, right? And we always give the rationale, it's family. So since it's family, we put all up with all kinds of sin and nonsense. Or do we call it to task? Everybody see why that becomes difficult? Because everybody thinks that everybody else stinks but themselves. Well, that's, that's not how the Bible deals with it. Notice it says here, why do you want to consecrate yourself in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you today? What does it mean for the church age, New Testament Christian, believer in Christ, consecrate themselves of course this is israel doing this we're not israel are we called to consecrate ourselves in the new testament 
Confession of sin would be a first step, wouldn't it? I mean, that's really what needs to happen here, doesn't it? In fact, watch what happens. It's very interesting. Notice Moses' words. Thank you, Leland, for bringing it up. See, my questions aren't hard. Are they? Oh, no, yes, Chuck, they are. So moving on. He told me I'm not clear about my questions. You know what? I agree. My wife's been telling me that for a couple of years. But it's true. I need to think better about them. You guys are right. I'm wrong. Notice it says here, verse 30. It's true, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it? My wife's like, his question's been awful for years. Okay. Verse 30. What's that? No, I said she did. It's okay. Yeah, she'll tell me. It's really great. She'll say, you know what? I don't know that we totally understood what you're getting at because you said this. And I'm like, well, that makes no sense. And she's like, well, that's what you said. And I'm like, well, I'm dumb. I don't know. So, yeah, sometimes I need that, man. Trust me. Notice verse 30 about confession of sin. On the next day, Moses said to the people, you yourselves had committed a great sin. Everybody see your marginal note there for committed? You've sinned a great sin. Just in case you were wondering what it is that y'all did, you sinned a great sin. And look what it says. And they have made a God of gold for themselves. Everybody see the word God? It's the word Elohim. Could mean gods of gold. Remember, the word Elohim is actually, and this isn't to sound blasphemous at all, it's actually a generic term for God, God in general. That's why you need the clarification if it's talking about God, the creator of all things, Yahweh, the Lord of the Hebrews. You see what I'm saying? That, that clarifies it for us. But right here he says, you've made Elohims of gold. You know what that tells you when it's bringing in the idea of little g gods? What does that tell you? You remember? It's what? It's demonic. It's got a demonic motivation behind it that has deceived the people. And we shouldn't be surprised at some point. I mean, they just came out of, you know, uh, the, the demon annual meeting of Egypt. I mean, that's where everybody that was a false god hung out at. They were all there deceiving everybody, and God had to deal with them one by one through the plagues that he issued. So that's what they've known for all this time, and this relationship with God is new but it's never failed. That's the reason why they're supposed to trust. And notice by turning to this, now that they have the law, the expectation of God of what it is to cultivate a fellowship relationship with him, now is the issue of you're held accountable for your sin. You're culpable for your irresponsibility and not upkeeping this. So notice it's bad. It's a bad sin. God's a gold for yourselves, verse 32. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. I'm sorry, did I skip 30? I did, I apologize. Go back to 30, forgive me. I committed a great sin, and now I am going up to Yahweh. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Everybody see what he's doing? What is an atonement? Does anybody know? Forgiveness, not just forgiveness, but there's something else that goes with it, an idea that goes with it. It is forgiveness, but it's the idea of satisfaction. It's the idea of covering of something that was wrong, and a satisfaction. In other words, God is satisfied because sin is out of the way. Now, the killing of the 3,000 people because of this sin was because of persistent rebellion. In other words, they didn't have to go out like that. They could have remained alive had they responded to Yahweh. But instead, they wanted to persist in following the Elohim, the little g-gods type of idea, and they were devoted to that. Therefore, they were disciplined harshly. Okay, so notice Moses is going to intercede. Intercede for them. He is going to stand in the gap and he is going to beckon God on behalf of undeserving and sinful people to be merciful to them. 
He says here, uh, Moses returned, verse 31, Moses returned to Yahweh and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. Does everybody see that Moses names the sin specifically? Everybody see that he's specific with it? Guys, when we talk about 1 John 1, 9, and we talk about confession of sin, God knows. Why do you think God would want us to be specific of our sin? Or let me say it this way. Why didn't Moses just walk up there and go, God, you know what they did. That was bad. Now, will you forgive them maybe? Why did he say they have made for themselves gods of gold? Why does he, why does he specify sin? Why should we specify sin? We think. So you acknowledge specifically what was wrong. Remember, the word in, in 1 John 1 9, confess your sins, it's the Greek word homologeo. It means to say the exact same thing about our sin that God says about it. It is a recognition of exactly where the wrong is. It's an extremely, it should be an extremely pride stripping point. Here's where I messed up, God. You know it. I did this. I saw this. I said this. I entertained this. Whatever it was. Exact specific point. So notice, Moses has no problem saying, there's great sin here. Now here's the interesting thing. Who's the person who didn't sin in this situation? Moses. And notice that Moses, being the one who didn't sin, is the one imploring of Yahweh to have mercy in this situation. That's intercession. If you're praying on behalf of sin, that's confession because you're the sinner. However, if you, being free of sin in that matter, are calling upon the Lord to be merciful or supplying for the needs of another person, that's intercession. That's the idea of making yourself available to plead the case of another person. That's why when we talk about intercessory prayer, we take prayer requests, those types of things. That's interceding. We are, we are experiencing intercessory prayer at that moment because we're calling on God to get involved in the situations of other people when sometimes they might not have the strength or if they're hardened by the sin in their lives, they don't care about bringing anything to him at all. So those are the things that we're praying about on behalf of those people. Notice that Moses brings sin up here. And, and here's what he says, verse 32, and this is a crazy verse. Moses was crazy like Paul was crazy, okay? But now, if you will, forgive their sin. And if not... If you decide you're not going to forgive them, and here's the interesting thing. Notice that he says, if not, which means what? Does God have to forgive their sin? Isn't this amazing? Stop for a second. God does not have to forgive sin. He doesn't have to. He's not obligated. Now, the sheer fact that he does and the sheer fact that it was great personal expense to him and Jesus Christ for us, that says something about grace. Because he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to send Jesus. He doesn't have to do any of that. But he does. That's incredible. Notice that Moses is saying here, Lord, you could choose to not forgive this sin. You could let it be sin before you always. You could hold that grudge if you wanted to. You could chastise them in that way if you desire. Nobody could speak it. Anybody going to sit here and go, but God, that's not fair. Was it fair? They probably deserved much worse than this, wouldn't they? But notice Moses is interceding for them. If you will, forgive their sin. And if not, now watch this. Please blot me out from your book, which you have written. 
What in the world does that mean? Blot me out of the book which you have written. <laughs> Will they lose their salvation? No. Notice what Moses is saying here. Real quick. I know it's Old Testament. It's kind of different. Moses doesn't know the name of Jesus. He doesn't. You know, he knows there's a Savior coming. He knows that he's accepted by faith alone. What's it? He knows there's a book. Now think about this. He is actually standing in the gap for these people. Now stop for a second. From what you and I know about the Israelites, let's all be real honest when we read it. You read through that, you're like, what in the world is wrong with these people? Don't you? I do. And then I have to sit there for a second and think about it. like, good grief, I'm just as bad as an Israelite sometimes. Right? Uh, it's real good. It's real easy for me to get high and mighty and want to pull out the, the, the hammer and start whacking people with it. But it's, but it's different when the hammer turns on myself because I'm the person that deserves the greatest whacking. It's bad. So we often sit here, what in the world is wrong with these people? Well, we need that too, okay? So notice what Moses is doing here. You know that somewhere in his mind, he's probably thinking, they don't deserve it. They don't deserve your forgiveness, God. Look what they've done kind of thing. But notice that he comes to them. He never brings that up. And I think the reason is, is because Moses understood grace. Grace is something that is exercised towards somebody because they are undeserving. In other words, the level or the depth or the hole that they've dug for themselves of undeservedness has no bearing on the kind extension of the person giving the grace. Do you see what I'm saying? They look over that. Or let's think of it in New Testament terms that we understand. But God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, what? Christ died. Does anybody think that it would have been easy for Jesus to look at all the sinners and be like, nah, not worth it. They got to do something to earn me doing this. This is a high price for me to pay and God, they're just not worth it. Isn't it amazing that that idea never came into God's mind? The sins of the world, the world's not worth it. They're not going to appreciate it. They're going to run all over it. They're going to dress it up to be something that it's not. They're going to destroy it. They're going to malign it. They're going to disregard it. Christ still died. Incredible. So now notice Moses is standing in that in-between section. God, if you're not going to forgive them, then guess what? Blot me out. He'll be killing me. I actually read one commentator that said, take away my eternal life. Is that what it's talking about? You know, I don't know that it is. Yeah. 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 When Paul says, I wish that you would curse, or you, you would curse me for the sake of my brethren, the Israelites, according to the flesh, that I would be cut off from Christ, Romans chapter 9, that they would believe. Is the idea. It's the same type of attitude. Now, what in the world does it mean to be blotted out of the book? Back in ancient times in, in, in Hebrew society, Middle Eastern society, Everybody tried to keep pretty good records. In fact, a lot has been proven through archaeological finds because of the meticulous record keeping that goes on. Let me give you a for instance. For the longest time, there was this word, uh, hypostasis, that a lot of people didn't understand. Uh, and the reason why they didn't understand it is because they really had no source of reference to go off of it in the Greek language. However, they came across an archaeological find one time in the Middle East, and all of these uh, tablets that they had, slats, stone tablets or whatever it was, that they found they found thousands of them, thousands of them. And they were all hypostasis, hypostasis, hypostasis. And come to find out they were title deeds to land is what they were. And so whenever we talk about the idea that we have a hypostasis 
with the Lord through Jesus Christ, we actually have we are actually entitled to be a partaker of him, to be a sharer of him, like someone would be an owner of land. It's very interesting. So when you find things like this, you actually find a lot through archaeological digs. Well, in the same idea, used to, they would keep record books of the living, living people. Where were they at that time? And it's just kind of like maybe you would do a census today, something like that, but you had a record of everybody. But when somebody died, their name was blotted out of the records. They no longer had relevance in the current living situation of the times. Well, that's not any different from this right here. Moses is saying, blot me out of your book. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you were born, the time that they kept books, your name was automatically put in, which is an interesting concept when you research things like the book of life throughout all of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. You want a fun study, do that. It's mentioned five times in the book of Revelation. It's extremely interesting, the book of life. Everybody remember the great white throne judgment and if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire. Everybody remember that? What it almost seems like, and I, I actually wouldn't doubt this, it's revolutionary to think in my mind for a while. Probably give me a headache after a while. I need to think of it more. But the idea seems to be that when you're born into this world, your name is written in God's book of life. And when you don't believe in Christ, it's expunged, taken away. It's rejected. It's very Now, are we saying that everybody's saved? We're not saying that everybody's saved. I'm not saying that the idea of faith is playing a role in the idea of record-keeping of who is living on the earth. I'm talking about being physically alive with the opportunity to believe in order to be saved. That's what I'm talking about. But the person who doesn't believe in Christ, their name is blotted out of the book. Does that make sense? Who rejects him? Exactly. Who either doesn't believe in this lifetime or has outward, outright rejected it. Let me give you an example real quick. Turn with me to Revelation 2. I think it's, it's either Revelation 2 or 3. Ah, Revelation 3. Talking to the church in Sardis. Verse 5. Uh, real quick, let me give you a, a basic structure here. The churches in Revelation are Jesus giving a divine evaluation about how people are doing in local congregations. Okay, Some people have said this is representative of epochs of church history throughout the, the world or whatever. I, I don't believe that at all. I think you're really hard-pressed to try to ram and cram history into this idea. But what we do know is they were seven literal churches that were uh, in the middle of the Galatia area uh, while John was exiled to the little island of Patmos and he's out there hammering out license plates and, license plates and stuff like that. He's serving like a penal servitude type of thing. Uh, and, and, and he receives the revelation of God, and Jesus tells him, write down these things and send them back into the churches. Here are some things you're doing good. Here are some things that you're doing bad. And because I've told you what the bad is, you need to maneuver yourself to correct those bad things, or I'm going to judge you because of it. Now, not judge, go to hell, but could very well stop your church. It's equated to the idea of removing your lampstand, blowing your candle out. Guys, the only reason why churches survive is because Jesus hasn't blown out the candle. That's the only reason why. That's why small little faithful churches remain for years and years and years, because they're faithful. That's what it has to do with. It's not because they're awesome. It's not because they've got prestigious people that go there. It's not because they got the latest lights going on. It's not because they got big givers or anything like that. Jesus can close a church in a moment's notice if he desires to. 
So the idea is faithfulness here. With that in mind, look at uh, chapter 3, verse 5. He who overcomes, and overcoming is where we get the word Nike from, like the shoes that we buy. Uh, it's the idea of the one who heeds what it is. Anybody got any something different from overcome? He who overcomes. He who what? Conquers. He who sees the wrong in front of them and overcomes it, conquers it, gets beyond it, recognizes what is sin or what is bad in Jesus' eyes and expels it from the situation. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. That's a privilege. It's not every believer gets that. It's a privilege. And I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. See, it's not just a cut and dry issue here. It's extremely interesting. And it's probably more complex than we can understand. Does everybody see this idea of the book of life is not just something simple? Uh, A lot of people who believe you can lose your salvation love this. They're like, oh, see, if you're not faithful, he just kicks you out. You're done. Your sin cost you entrance into heaven. That completely negates the finality of Jesus' work, so we can't think in that, in that realm. Uh, if that's the case, Jesus, Jesus wasn't sufficient enough to keep you. Your sin was greater than his grace. That's weird. So do a study of the book of life sometime. Turn over to, turn over to uh, 20 real quick. Let's see that. Revelation 20. Look at verse 12. And I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne. The books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books, plural, according to their deeds. That's the other books that were opened, not the book of life. The sea gave up the dead, which were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead, which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death of the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So it seems like that your name starts out there. And if you've believed in Jesus, your name stays there unto eternity. But it is a book of living people who, if their names are not there, in other words, the reason why these people's names wouldn't be there is because they didn't believe in the free pardon of salvation that Jesus offers to them. And so since they didn't believe at that time, their names were removed from this book. Well, when it came time to give an account of what's going on with your eternal destiny, their works are judged to see whether or not they merit salvation. If they were good enough, if they kept God's law in order to merit their personal righteousness to get in, well, that's going to fail, like knock over like a house of cards in a moment. But now the question is, is do they have life? That's the question. So when it looks over to the separate book, the book of life, you found out their names are not there. I can't find their names which is interesting because the idea of looking for someone's name in the, in the book of life shows me that Jesus is searching for it. Isn't that interesting? Shows kind of like a, a, a merciful desire to see that name there. Interesting stuff. Anyway, let's go back to Exodus 32 and finish this up. Book of life is an interesting study. Uh, it's been a long, long time since I've had the opportunity to study it, but if you want to do an interesting study, you got your Strong's Concordance and your Vines, right? Strong's and Vines, there it is. Sit down and do your hermeneutical exegesis see all these great words we bring up and and you can find out a lot about the book of life it's good 10 page report one inch margins double space um look into uh yeah Turabian format um verse 33 chapter 32 33 verse 33 the lord yahweh said to moses whoever has sinned against me i will blot him out of my book but go now lead the people where i told you Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I 
punish when I visit the sins upon them. I will punish them for their sin. Then Yahweh smote the people, not to death, because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. In other words, the death of the 3,000 was because they refused to respond in conviction to Moses' arrival, calling them out for their sin, crushing the idol, grounding it up, making them drink of the water that had the dust in it. Uh, these, the 3,000 that died were those who would not repent. This right here, smote them, is the idea of striking them with a plague, much like Egypt had been struck with a plague. And so everyone received a fresh reminder of what it was to disobey the Lord. The Lord didn't seem to exempt anybody but Moses from this process. Everybody received a reminder of how wrong it was to disobey. However, the 3,000 who refused to repent, those are the ones who lost their lives. Any questions about that before we move back to Deuteronomy 9? Okay, Deuteronomy 9. Turn there. And you might say, good grief, why in the world were we in the middle of Exodus and this is Deuteronomy class? Uh, the reason is, is because what we were looking at was Moses is trying to prepare these people to cross over into the promised land. And the first generation failed greatly. They set the worst example you could ever possibly have for what it is to follow God, okay? With sin is responsibility for that sin. And God disciplines sin. He has no problem doing it because he's a father. He actually cares about his people to discipline them when they're wrong. So in doing that, uh, Moses was recounting to them the problems that would arise in this situation and to learn from the golden calf incident. And where we are going to pick up is going to be in verse 20. Chapter 9 of Deuteronomy, verse 20. Yahweh was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him. Notice the intercession. So I prayed for Aaron at the same time. I took your sinful thing, the calf which you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it into very small, uh, grinding it very small until it was fine as dust. And I threw its dust into the brook and came down the mountain. Notice he doesn't bring up that he made them drink it. And that's the reason why we went back and looked at the actual incident that took place. Anytime that you're in the Bible and they bring up a former incident, pause take the time, go back, research the incident, and then bring that knowledge to this. Notice there was much more going on here that were the ramifications of this idolatry before them. So look at verse 22 again at Taborah. Anybody know what happened in Taborah? Okay, put your finger here, Numbers 11. Look over at Numbers 11. Put your finger right here, go to Numbers 11 real quick. Turn back just a couple pages, a couple books, one book. Many pages, one book. Numbers 11, 1. And what does your heading say? The people what? Complain, complain. Tom came up to me afterwards and said, the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, we know what that is because we sit through your sermons every week. <laughs> Complaining is bad. The people complain. Guys, complaining has a lot greater hindrance and bearing on our spiritual life than maybe what we realize. If you were to just do a word study of complaining in the New Testament alone, you should be convicted to repentance. It's crazy. It's crazy how bad grumbling and complaining and the references back to the Old Testament instances that cost Israel fellowship experiences with God. God couldn't do great things with them because of how complaining and unbelieving they were. Look at Numbers 11.1. 1. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in hearing of Yahweh. 
And when Yahweh heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of Yahweh burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to Yahweh, and the fire died out. So the name of the place was called Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. What does Taborah mean in your marginal note? Burning. So when Moses is sitting here talking to them about, just like Taborah, go back, verse 22, again at Taborah, what's the word mean? Burning. Just like that time of the burning that took place because of the complaining hearts of the people. Now think about it. We're not told specifically what it was, but it's just the fact that they heard that Yahweh was asking them to do something, that they complained against it. And Yahweh said, enough. We're dealing with this now. Sad occasion. How about it? Masa. What happened at Masa? Anybody know? Exodus 17. Put your fingers here. Let's turn there. Aren't you glad you came to Sunday school today? Exodus 17. What does your heading say? You don't have a heading? Praise the Lord. What? The complaint. Hold up. Numbers 11.1 is the complaining. The people complain. Exodus 17 is the complaint about the water. Notice that. 17.1, then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of Yahweh and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. And they said, you know what? God rescued us from Egypt. We know that to be a fact. And so we're going to have faith in that fact so that we won't complain because we feel like complaining if we don't have our heads on straight. Is that what happens? No. See, trains weren't even made then, but if they were, they would have known this. Not true. Notice verse 22. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test Yahweh? What was the test? Can Yahweh supply water for them? Notice it was unbelief. Why are you doubting him? Why are you doubting the power of God? Hasn't he proven himself enough? What else does he got to do to convince you that he's God? Man, what a relevant lesson this is for today. Notice it says, verse 3, But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children? We got to bring the kids in because that's what tugs on the heartstrings, right? And our livestock with thirst. So Moses cried out to the Lord. I love that Moses didn't look for a switch. Aren't you thankful? Did anybody's grandparents look for a switch up here? Anybody have to go cut their own switch? Good gravy. My grandmother could light my legs up with a switch. Notice, instead, he cries out to the Lord. God, help. In other words, he immediately retreated to prayer. He cries out to the Lord saying, what shall I do to this people? A little more and they will stone me. These people are, and that tells you how angry they were. Moses' life was actually threatened. He felt threatened. Like he would suffer bodily harm and death in the situation. It became a mob. Verse 5, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. Get the leadership involved so that it starts trickling down the pike and they communicate it correctly. Notice this. And take in your hand your staff, which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people 
may drink, and Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel. What does Massa mean in your marginal note? Testing. It means to test the Lord. Remember that place where you guys tested the Lord in the first generation is what he's saying back in Deuteronomy 9. That time of testing, remember that? That costs you with God. Go back to that. Notice he's, he's bringing up these past sins because he is warning them of unfaithfulness. Uh, let me give you a great for instance. I know I've talked about this a lot before. But whenever Beth and I were called to step out of youth ministry, because it was just stellar and I was an incredible youth pastor, uh, but whenever we were called to step out and go plant a church, I immediately did the spiritual thing and said, let me pray about it. No, that's what I said. Okay? And my life was miserable for that year. It was awful. It wasn't until we listened to the Lord and actually stepped out to plant a church that we saw all kinds of blessing and provision start coming our way. I didn't know how I was going to have a mortgage. I didn't have a mortgage at that time. I didn't know how I was going to afford that. I was making a third of what I was making as a youth pastor, and somebody was mowing my lawn for me. Now I had to mow my own lawn. Hard times. I know. You see how that works? <laughs> Poor Jeremy. But in doing that, when, when the idea came, when we saw that God was moving and doing things, and the question was, should we be in Wisconsin? Should we come here? We had to talk about, let's not make the mistake we made before and tell the Lord no. If he's going to lead us, let's pray. Let's be patient. Let's wait on him and be open to his leading. We learned a severe lesson from, from, from the mess that my unbelief had put us in for a year. And it was hard. That church was fun, wasn't it, where I was youth pastor at? My wife could tell you stories, but she won't because she's a godly lady. They're rough stories. They're rough stories. The Lord provides when you obey him, when you seek his face in those matters. So notice, Moses is bringing up these past events in order to get their attention so that they won't make the same mistakes again. Very important stuff. So notice after that, Terabah, Masah, and Kibroth Hat Tava. Right? Any kids' names? Kibroth Hat Tava? Come here. Eat your cereal. That'll get some attention. Notice, you, provo you provoked Yahweh to what? What is it? Wrath. God's judgment is his wrath. His wrath is his judgment. What is the event at Kibroth Hat Tava? Everybody put your finger here and turn back to Numbers 11, but we're going to start in verse 4 this time. Notice after the situation of the complaining there and the fire that burned, Numbers 11, we'll finish up with this. Verse 4. And actually, this passage stretches all the way to 34. I'm not going to read all of it, but I want you to get the gist of what's going on here. The rabble who were among them had what? Greedy desires. They desired a desire. Now, desiring a desire, having greedy desires, automatically tells you that it comes from what? Were they desiring holiness? Were they desiring godliness? Were they desiring to walk more fully with the Lord? Where did it come from? Flesh. It's the heart. The evil of the heart. Notice, they had evil desires, greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish we used to eat free in Egypt. How does that hurt right there? Was Egypt the Holiday Inn? It was not, okay? 
Notice this. And cucumbers and melons and leeks. What are leeks? (laughs) Disgusting. And the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to look at except this manna. What are they doing, guys? Everybody see the greedy desires? They weren't content. They weren't appreciating what God had done. They wanted more. Yeah, God provided this bread from heaven for us to eat when we had nothing. We don't know how it got here. The word manna means what is it? It's supernatural, whatever it is. And it's filling their bellies every day. But we want meat. Everybody see how greedy. Everybody see this? And we're not any different from these people. We always want more than what we're given. Or let me say it this way to coincide with the, the, the verses that we looked at today. We're rarely content with letting Christ be all that we need. Instead, we push Him out of the way and we're constantly grasping for more. Solomon equated it to grasping for the wind. Whatever it is that I don't have, I desperately need. But you know what? The answer is definitely not Jesus. Guys, our thinking needs to be corrected on that. Our minds have to be renewed to the idea Jesus is everything. Cannot afford to have unbelief. Why? Well, if for anything, these three Old Testament warnings of what happens. Why? Because the wrath of God then comes across the people of God. Well, we're saved. The wrath of God couldn't come across us. It's not what Romans 1 says. Romans 1 says it doesn't matter who it is, believer or unbeliever, when you suppress the truth of God, God's wrath is actively revealed, presently revealed against you. It happens. And a lot of times, I shouldn't have said the word actively because it's not. A lot of times, what it is is it's passive in nature. You want to sin in that way? Great. Go on with your sin and see what that gets you. It's just a greater hole of dissatisfaction. That's all it is. We have to heed the word. We have to trust God at all costs. We don't understand. No, we don't. If he told us what the end was, there'd be no need for trust. But he calls us to trust his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Pray, God, we be faithful in all that you've placed in our hands, that we would look to your word for the answer. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, everyone. If you could help with chairs, we'd greatly appreciate it.